The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Dana Stevens, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Talkin' Traz edition. It's Wednesday, March 27th, 2019, and on today's show, Jordan Peele's new horror film Us is the follow-up to his Get Out from a couple years ago and is already a massive critical and box office hit we will discuss. Then Shrill is a new comedy from Hulu that's based on the book Shrill, Notes from a Loud Woman by Lindy West. It's about navigating friends, romance, and the publishing industry as an overweight woman. And finally, we'll talk about the book Dreyer's English, an utterly correct guide to clarity and style with the author, Benjamin Dreyer. You might remember that I endorsed this book a few weeks ago, and we're very excited to have Benjamin coming into the studio to talk about it with us today. Stephen is out this week. He is traipsing around the northern Spanish Galician coast. I'm incredibly jealous. Uh, and he's going to be writing on it, apparently. So maybe we can we can debrief him on that when he comes back. But as usual, I am joined by the deputy managing editor for arts and culture at the L.A. Times, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia, welcome back. Hello. Thank you so much for holding down the fort last week when I had to take my kids on a whale watching field trip. I'm glad to be back. Tell me about the whales you saw. We saw a gray whale surface many times barnacled up close and a humpback whale breach in the distance and its its uh, speckled fluke d- disappear under the sea and uh, so many dolphins that everyone was bored in a very Californian fashion. <laughs> you were over the dolphins very quickly? Yeah, it's like, oh, yawn, grapefruit tree in your yard, boo, dolphins <laughs> everywhere. Our closest undersea compatriot. Oh, well, there they go. Also joining me in Slate's Brooklyn studio this week is Slate's beloved TV critic, the host of the Dakota Ring podcast and beloved friend of the program, BFOP, Willa Paskin. Hey, Willa. Hi. We should just say that the new Decoder Ring is just out. I haven't heard it yet, but I just I have to give our listeners the title by way of promotion because how can you not want to listen to an episode entitled Truck Nuts? Please listen. <laughs> it is about I truck nuts. Have, I have listened and it is great. It is everything you would want from a Decoder Ring episode called Truck Nuts. The movie Us blew past expectations this weekend with a massive opening weekend of $70 million at the domestic box office, the most an original horror film has ever grossed in the first weekend, also the second highest opening this year after Captain Marvel. It's Jordan Peele's sophomore directing effort, the follow-up to Get Out, which of course we discussed and everyone discussed back in 2017 when it came out. If Get Out was Peele's take on the slow burn psychological horror of movies like Rosemary's Baby, then Us is his take on slashers like Halloween, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, movies in that tradition. There's a lot more in there too, though, as we'll get to. Us is, as you know if you've seen the ubiquitous trailer, the story of a family that's haunted by a group of their exact doppelgangers who invade their beach house as they try and protect themselves and each other from these horrifying versions of themselves. The film stars Lupita Nyong'o, Winston Duke, Shahadi Wright-Joseph, Evan Alex, Elizabeth Moss, and Tim Heidecker. Let's listen to a clip. You know how sometimes things line up? Yeah. You know, like coincidences. Since we've been here, they've been happening more and more. I think, I feel like it means like she's getting closer. Who? The mirror girl? You don't believe me. I, 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 I do. I do. I'm, I'm processing. Okay? I just... Can't believe you kept all this inside for so long. 
You know I'm here, right? All right. I have a lot to say about this movie, but I've already said a lot about this movie. <laughs> I reviewed it, and I also recorded a spoiler special podcast with uh, with Cameron Collins from Vanity Fair. So if people want to hear full-on spoilers, which we're not going to do here, I don't think that would make sense for this movie. Um, they should go to that. But Julia, I want to start with you because I know that you are scared of horror movies and you probably had to dig deep to go into this one. We even talked about whether we should do it as a topic, given that you are strongly affected by horror movies and I don't want to haunt your dreams. But you did make yourself go. And so I want to hear, was it worth it for you? I do not like scary movies, but I also think Get Out is maybe my favorite movie of the last five years. And so I was going to see this movie regardless of whether we talked about it on this show, despite how scary it looked. Um, and on the sheer scariometer, I would say actually that the trailer makes it look scarier than it is. It's not like an unrelenting two hours of terrifying, creepy doppelgangers, like standing silently and ominously in the driveway and then sudden flashes of gold scissors, which is basically what the trailer is. Um, there's a lot of that, but there's also more tonal variation, kind of like we saw with Get Out. There's comic hijinks, there's wry social tweaking, uh, and then there's a really weird and gnarly plot that is, I think, less of a perfect little compressed gemstone of suspense and insight then I found Get Out to be. This is a more sprawling, um, encompassing, ambiguous document. But I thought it was successfully sprawling and ambiguous and not, um, you know, misdirectedly, sophomore slumpily sprawling and ambiguous. What did you guys think? So I also really don't like scary movies and I would not probably have seen this film if we weren't talking about it Um, and to prepare myself I completely spoiled it for myself before going in which really helped me like sit through it Um, I thought it was I think it's really interesting and good like I'm not (laughs) uh, I think there's I think there's like there's a lot of things happening it but to pick two of them it feels to me like there's this extremely taut unsettling fascinating story that's anchored by Lupita's performance um, going on in this movie that's like a great, to take Julia's word, like a little gemstone of like a storyline. And then there's the rest of the movie, which I think has all of these other pieces and threads and allegorical valences. And, you know, he's just working with so much stuff, Peel is. Um, And that I think is all really interesting. I don't know that it sort of like works or comes together it certainly doesn't do that in quite the satisfying way that get out did i don't think that it um i don't think it like ruins the movie in any way i think it's what makes the movie actually fun to talk about and to keep thinking about but it doesn't feel like fully as controlled peel gets and should deserves a lot of credit for like controlling like having knowing how we're going to react to things and i think there's a little bit of like not sophomore slump but like a little bit of like Unpredict. I don't know that he planned every single way that every single piece at the end of the movie would sort of land um, or what it meant. But I think that there is running through it this like the main story is like to me nightmare inducing in a really awesome and interesting way. Well, okay, I want to get into what that story is, but I just have to say first of all that I I, I must be the only one of the three of us who is who was really thrilled by this movie. I mean, did you not walk out of it kind of boiling with ideas and conversations and? things that you carried away from I mean, it. I was just like having like a personal experience of like being deeply unsettled and I don't love that feeling. Like I just like, I like saw it in the middle of the day and then you like come out into daylight and you're just like, 
you know, like it, it, and you saw it alone. Yeah, like the yeah, not thrill, a good way to It's just it. like is uh, it was like it's a messed up movie and like it means to be. And I don't, I don't, I don't know about thrilling is like the word that I found it. I did also like find some of the, I find a lot of the ideas in it really fun to think about and I'm sure to write about and to talk about. But I did also find them to be like kind of sloppy and there is like a long villain exegesis or villain in quotes like where the bad guy as far as you know like gives a whole speech about what's happening that actually is delivered in a beautiful and interesting way and is filmed in a beautiful and interesting way and yet is nonetheless like the scene where like Batman's enemy should just be killing Batman instead is like telling you the whole plot that I found like did not overcome that aspect of itself. Yeah, it is extremely sprawling in comparison to Get Out, which has this compact allegorical perfection, right? You can draw, you can almost draw a, a schemata of the the story that Get Out tells. And this movie is far more sprawling in the story that it tries to tell. It's far more obscure in its meaning at times. There are, I guess you'd call them red herrings or things that are, are thrown out and never quite called back again. But I appreciated so much that this movie was trying to do something different and had so many thematic and also sociocultural ambitions. I mean, something that is interesting to say right up top for those who have seen Get Out and want to see this and love Get Out is that this is much less explicitly about race than Get Out is, right? I mean, although race is not irrelevant to the story at all, that's really not what the allegory is about. I feel like that's a little bit us giving like peel a little like taking taking the author like a little too much at their word like it's very easy to read it as being a lot essentially about race i mean it's essentially about capitalism it's essentially about the prison system it's essentially about a brave new world i mean it's it's a lot about a lot a lot of different things but race is is a big one of those things. Okay, well, I know we don't want to get too far into the specifics in this film, but the first thing I did when I left it, because I my husband was too scared to see it, so I saw it with a friend of ours, and he had to run off to a dinner. So I was, like, standing alone on the sidewalk about to head home, and I just, like, frantically Googled end of us meaning. So <laughs> and now I will throw my Google query at you. End of us meaning, guys. What does it mean? It means so many things, right? I mean, this is why I say that I, I, I thrilled to this movie more than you guys did, even though maybe I can agree that it didn't map as perfectly onto a template of allegorical horror as some other movie might. I love the multiplicity of meanings that it has and the, and the multiplicity of the relationship between, and we'll try to say this without spoiling to the degree possible, between the, I don't know, let's call them the original Wilson family and the double Wilson family. So the, the language of the movie describes the people, um, the original Wilson family, as the, as the untethered and the, the doubles as the tethered. They're tethered to, their, to the people that are... That, that seem like regular people, and the doubles are... Um, shadow versions. They the also shadow, call right. themselves shadow so selves. So this idea of the shadow self and the, like, authentic self or the shadow self and the sun, the self that's in the sun, or like, that is... I think we can get into what sort of, like, the possible meanings of that are. And it's, like, this idea that what is the shadow self, like, doing in the shadows that makes the life in the sun possible, right? Like, um, and what kind of complicity do the people living that, living our, you know posh lives in Santa Cruz have to the people that they may or may not have been aware of, you know, at at their periphery. And like that, I think um, I think that actually maps onto like a ton of stuff about American culture and and not just American culture, like where we are right now, like like outsourcing all of the things that need to happen to people who are uh, more impoverished or less uh, of of a different color or like. or in the prison system, or um, you know, just of a different social class. Like it, it. I think it hits like all of those things. Like, um, 
pretty like square on. And that's, you know, it's not even that you can make an argument. It's one or the other. Like it's all of that. Right. I think it is all of those things at once, which gives the movie this mysterious, enigmatic kind of quality. I mean, also, you could say, since it's a movie about trauma and childhood trauma and kind of kind of going back and dealing with it, you could say that the shadow selves, that they are the interior selves or, you know, just the, the dark heart of, of each person. And that's something that really comes out in Yongo's performance, where you have to see the monster in the regular Lupita and the regular Lupita in the monster. One of the things that sort of most interesting and powerful about it is that it like twists up and into like a ball of yarn this idea of like guilt like what we us like living in America or living in the world right now fortunate people like what our culpability is for all of the terrible things that are happening around us at all times um, and how much we choose to be cognizant of it and how much we don't and how much um the like the the past the fantasy of our passivity like being somehow um esculpatory is like totally bullshit <laughs> and that that like when you start to follow all the threads of the movie like down each of their you know through each character like you do end up at that like just really gnarly like there's sort of no excuse yeah place. which means that there's a lingering sense of horror after you come out of the movie i mean not just remembering scary stuff about somebody jumping out with scissors there's a little bit of that but there's there's a there's a way in which the world looks a little bit different coming out of this movie and some of it's like what did you know and when and like some of it can actually specifically anchor to questions of plot and some of it's like really just questions of ideas well, and the fact that those two things are related i mean i think the thing that makes it a little murkier than get out is the fact that you can read it as kind of political social allegory. There's this set of people who are think they are the good guys, but their whole life is based on their own cluelessness about the suffering of others and whether it's prisoners or people working in sweatshops around the world right now to provide material goods or uh, generations of slaves whose labor created the America we know Um there, there's a bunch of different ways to read the political allegory, but that sense of kind of cluelessness, like f- uh, being in a dumb boat floating on a sea of badness uh, is is one set of lenses. But then the the fact that you can layer on top of it, like what do we repress inside ourselves about our dark alter egos? I mean, one of the most powerful things there, there for various reasons that we don't need to get into you know, the nature of the characters varies, but one of the things that happens in any slasher film, right, is that the good guys become killers. They have to, they have to like, kill the baddie to escape. And so fundamentally, if, if you make it through the movie and you're driving off, like, relieved in dawn the next morning, you have, like, become a murderer in order to survive a slasher film. Like, that's just a thing in slasher films often, right? You know, one one other thing this movie does that's really interesting is, like, treat those kills with a certain kind of gravity, uh, both about what it would mean to be like a, just a family on vacation and then suddenly your night changes and you're like murdering a weird doppelganger, but actually the act of like killing a human seeming body would be weird. Like it, you wouldn't just be like, oh yeah, I got away. Woo. You know, like the, the movie pauses there for reasons that, that take on more meaning as the, as the film goes on. But, um, I don't know. I like it is operating on so many levels and it's a little there's it's kind of plucking so many different notes at once that uh, that it's not as pure and clear and lucid as get out. But it it's interesting. It's like fun to play around in your mind with what it means. 
All right. Well, this may, I realize, be frustrating for those of you who haven't yet seen the movie because we had to be so vague because the spoilers start early and often in this movie, the twists, that is. So if you want to hear more uh, unfettered conversation about us, you can listen to me and Cameron Collins' spoiler special, which is uh, up on the Slate podcast feed and read my review. But really, just go see the movie. Go see it with some friends and dig your fingernails into their arms and come back and tell us what you think. We are at Slate Cult Fest on Twitter. Let's take a break from the show to do this week's business. First of all, Slate Plus is celebrating its fifth anniversary this year, so we are throwing parties across the country just for Slate Plus members. You can enjoy a festive evening with some of your favorite Slatesters over drinks for a fun night of conversation and trivia, and the first drink is on us. So thank you. Whether you've been a member for five years or five days, your support makes our work possible. We'll be hosting parties on April 3rd in D.C., Brooklyn, and San Francisco. You can go to slate.com slash live for tickets and info. And another fun piece of business, we are doing something big on Saturday, June the 8th. We'll be in the Chelsea Market Passage on the High Line and in the SVA Theater in Chelsea with a day of live podcasts, energetic conversations, and fun experiences with our biggest personalities and lots of special guests. You can come for the whole day with the all-access pass or just grab tickets for your favorite show. Either way, we can't wait to see you at Slate Day. You can start the day at our special brunch show with the hosts from Outward and The Waves, Put your pop culture knowledge to the test by joining a trivia team featuring Slate culture writers and editors, including me. I'm running a table. Go behind the scenes of art with Studio 360, politics with Trumpcast, and culture with Decoder Ring. Bring your kids to the first ever mom and dad are fighting play date to enjoy some organized chaos with the hosts. Once again, that's Saturday, June the 8th. Go to Slate.com Live for more information and tickets about Slate Day. Today in Slate Plus, we're going to be talking about spoilers and specifically uh, Willa's habit of deliberately spoiling herself for horror movies she's about to see because it makes her less scared. When she mentioned that she was doing this with us, I was fascinated, especially as a critic who tries to avoid learning absolutely anything about the movies I go to see. And so we're going to talk about spoilers specifically in that context, what it feels like to lessen one's own anxiety by pre-spoiling a movie. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program, which is a great way to support the journalism that we do. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing this show and all your other favorite Slate shows. And in return, you get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and many other wonderful benefits. So if you want to support the Culture Gap Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. Shrill is a new comedy on Hulu based on the book Shrill, Notes from a Loud Woman by Lindy West. West was also one of the writers on the show, which is executive produced by Lorne Michaels and Elizabeth Banks. The show stars A.D. Bryant of Saturday Night Live fame as Annie, a writer struggling to deal with her career, her sick father, her tumultuous love life, and more while being a fat woman. The show has garnered mainly positive reviews and lots of praise for A.D. Bryant's performance. Let's listen to a clip from Shrill. You can just take my number. Oh, Oh, my God, you're Tone Tanya. (laughs) Um, I was just taking a photo so the tabs were available for other people, so. Here, take a tab. Thank you. (laughs) Oh. Wow. Your wrists are tiny. Oh. You actually have a really small frame. There is a small person inside of you dying to get out. Oh, well, I hope that small person's okay in there. (laughs) (laughs) I know, it gets even possible, but you can do this. You weren't meant to carry around all this extra weight. Oh, wow, Um, very cool. (laughs) I know I can help you. Well, that's very nice. Thank you. No, thank yourself for the amazing way you're gonna feel after you give yourself permission to be well. Thank you, me. (laughs) 
could be so pretty. Oh. Ouch. Okay, so that interaction which she has in a cafe with a, uh, a freelance fitness trainer named Tone Tanya is typical of a lot of the interactions that happen, at least in the first few episodes of this show, where we really just see the uh, the pre-awakening Annie, right? I mean, somebody who is really uncomfortable in her body and is always getting herself into positions where she's kind of being subtly and not so subtly put down. Willa, you reviewed Shrill. There's been lots of talk about, you know, whether Shrill is this kind of empowering document or or whether its extreme focus on, you know, weight and size and body issues puts the protagonist in too much of a corner. What did you make of this show? So I reviewed the show and I like regret the review. Um, I have like so many more things to say about it now that I've thought about say it a little now. bit more. Um, no, I don't regret the review. I think it's like a I think it's like a pretty lovely show, but I have some more nuanced thoughts about it than I did at the time. Um, I think the thing that is good about it, definitively, is that it does not put the character in a corner. I think the show is like, as is the the book that it's based on, Lindy West's sort of memoir, Shrill, um, it is about a person who has a lot of aspects to her personality, is sort of like a good writer, is has a sex life, has friends, um, is like, a sort of bubbly, lovely person who is fat and her fatness is, and, and Lindy West in her book talks a lot about using the word fat and wanting to use the word fat and feeling like hiding from the word fat is actually ruder than using the word fat. Um, that that's like definitely a part of her life and a part of her life that she's dealing with and thinking about a lot, but it's not like her whole life. I actually think compared to a lot of shows that are about this subject, Shrill is very good at explaining to you like this is a whole person and this is on her mind but this is not the entirety of her being um the thing i think that's that i would have wanted to think about a little more about um sure which i give a very positive review is is i think there is a way that it feels a lot like a lot of tv shows now where like it's a little wan you know like it's a little like not like a little nice and flat <laughs> like, like that there's that it's that it's sort of um like good to watch and lovely but there's nothing quite vivid and vibrant and energetic and spiky about it and and that is actually particularly remarkable in this context because of Lindy West the writer so it's a you know, the character that A.D. Bryant plays is named Annie Easton. She lives in Portland as opposed to Seattle, but she's very like a Lindy West type. But I do think that A.D. Bryant's whole vibe, which is this very so delightful, so friendly, so lovely, so sweet, like that's her energy that she brings. It feels really different than the energy that Lindy West, the writer, has. And so there's all these moments that I think in the book um, and in Lindy West's life where she's sort of like learning to be her most confident most outspoken, um, just most unabashed self that they play actually really differently, like in the character of Annie, who feels like she's really like two steps forward, one step back about a lot of different things. And that even when she is sort of standing up for herself, it doesn't have like a kind of like revolutionary (laughs) fervor that Lindy West really, really does. Um, And that and that just sort of like, you know, that there's a lot of lovely things about the show, but it does sort of feel a little like just nice 
you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that really comes out in the framing of her as a writer as well, right? Because a, a breakthrough moment in the show is when she publishes, self-publishes, apparently, without her editor's permission, this blog post called Hello, I'm Don't Fat. do that. Title. That made me so anxious as an editor. I know we're rooting for her to do that. <laughs> I want to get to the image of... I really want to get to the image of the place that she works, the uh, the fictional alt weekly called the, the Weekly Thorn, that she which is like the at. fictional version of the Seattle Stranger. Of the Seattle Stranger, right? right. I bet um, it's not even that fictional. So she publishes this post. It goes viral, and it's sort of the idea is that it sort of kicks off her career as a writer, and all these people are coming up to her and telling her that she's changed their life with her writing. And yet, we never get to see any of her writing. And this seemed particularly puzzling to me in that we actually have a place to go to find writing that would convince the viewer of her skill, which is Lindy West's own writing. Well, it's even crazier. So it's based on a Lindy West piece, literally, that Lindy West wrote and ran with a picture of herself with her weight and her height. That was called Hello, I'm Fat? I don't know if it was called Hello, I'm Fat, but it was something very similar. And weirdly, they rewrite that. Like, if you, uh, Andrea Longchu, um, who's a critic and writer and thinker, she, like, in her newsletter wrote about Shrill and like quoted the text from Shrill's version of this piece, which is not the Lindy West text and like is so, I mean, it's very not, you know, writing for writing on writing on television is always very bad, but it's just like, it is like they have this piece and the piece, they, the line they actually quote that her boyfriend quotes is a straight up line from the Lindy West piece. Like I'm a, you know, this body carries around my great brain that has like, makes all these funny jokes, but that is actually just like not a particularly... It's not one of the more radical lines in the piece itself, which I think is like a really awesome and angry piece. Yeah, I guess the the show needed some more of those polemics. I mean, the place that you do see some edge and some pushback is in the relationship that the A.D. Bryant character has with her publisher, the editor-in-chief of The Weekly Thorn, who is played by John Cameron Mitchell in a gloriously bitchy performance, and who essentially kind of masks his fat phobia in this concern for her health and wellness, which is the same thing we hear that fitness instructor doing in that clip, and the same thing that her mother, played by Julia Sweeney in the show, also does. And, uh, And that kind of stuff could be brought more to the foreground, I feel like, those kind of battles within the world of, you know, fat representation? Yeah, I I had the same experience you did, Willa, I think, I think I'm expressing it correctly, of feeling like I was very glad the show existed and there was much to enjoy about it, and yet somehow it did not transcend to a level of greatness. And I was trying to figure out why. And I can't decide if it's because I wish it were more about those kind of interactions with undermining people or less. But I think I have the opposite conclusion, Dana, which is I wish it were kind of less about those those battles. I mean, the, the you know, the challenge with uh, representation on screen, right, is there's an initial set of works where the point of the work is like I'm gay experience my gay love like this is look now we're showing gay being the struggles of being gay the struggles of being black or the struggles of being whatever on screen and then it is sort of a humanizing representative effort because you uh, begin to see the types of characters you wouldn't have seen otherwise but then there's also something sort of dehumanizing about it because it suggests that the only story worth telling about people who have characteristics that are less frequently represented you know, suggest that the, their whole world revolves around uh, that. I mean, I think this is part of what we found so radical and great about Beale Street is the way that it played with those those ideas and facets. But um, in this, the characters just felt a little thin, and I, I could imagine them deepening over time. But, you know, I think my favorite episode, and this has been cited as an excellent episode, is the one where uh, A.D. Bryant's character goes to a kind of body positivity pool party, and it's a pool party full 
of fat women in various states of bathing suit and whatever else, just frolicking in a pool in this kind of brightly colored dreamscape. And for the first half of the scene, Annie, our lead character, isn't frolicking. She's She feels nervous. She, even in this environment that's literally designed, the whole point of it is to make women with bodies like hers feel comfortable frolicking and enjoying a swim in the pool on a hot day. She doesn't feel like she earns it or deserves it or needs it. And there was something about the specificity of that struggle and the sense that her response to a situation might not actually be rooted in her physicality, but might be rooted in her own particular psychology and that there were lots of women with similar physicalities who had a different response to this moment that felt electric and more electric than a lot of the other scenes where you felt less like there was a specific woman responding to a situation and more like you felt more as though there was a type of woman responding to a situation. And because of A.D. Bryant and the strength of just how charming and how winning and how fun it is to spend time with her on camera, you sort of don't mind because you're like, but it's not just a type of woman. It's A.D. Bryant being a type of woman. But there's something like, I, I don't know, the, the, the it felt like on that episode, like the sun shot through the clouds. And I was like, oh, this is what this show could be. And then it kind of passed back behind the clouds in, in f- further scenes. This makes me want to talk about like the third rail of the show, which is A.D. Bryant's performance, which I actually has been praised to the skies. And I think is a really good example of how like someone being so appealing and likable and good company can like completely overcome them being like just an okay actress. Like I don't actually think that she's great particularly like there's some scenes where like you're looking at her thinking and you're like I think like this seems like this is one of the first really serious dramatic roles you've ever done. But it doesn't really matter because you just, like, she's just a fun hang. And, like, there is, I think that the show gets away with a lot of stuff around just, like, her being appealing, but, like, without necessarily, like, quite the level of skill that, like, it would have to really nail it. And then and then this also made me think of another thing, which is, which I actually got into, like, a Twitter uh, argument about, which is her goofy boyfriend, who is, like, this overgrown man child who in the beginning of the show like doesn't want to acknowledge her existence uh except when they're having sex and then like she sort of keeps standing up for herself with him and he keeps being like no and I want to be your boyfriend but he's really like he's beneath her he's he's just a phase I mean not that this happens in the show but like and and I had gotten into a conversation on Twitter about whether or not like her increasing self-empowerment would have been better if she had, like, dumped this dude before the end of the series, before the end of the six episodes. And to me, it just seems very obvious that, like, like also knowing Lindy West's story, like, she is going to throw this dude over and get a better boyfriend, uh, like, next season. But I actually liked him in this thing because not only is he, like, extremely funny, but this idea of hanging on to a dude who is a child who is beneath you is like that is not that's a universal experience of like this age and it had nothing particularly yeah, you can do to that do. in anybody in any place <laughs> exactly and so and there was that way where I like I liked that storyline because it was connected to her self-confidence which is connected to her body but it was like it was this reminder that right like this is about Confidence is a thing that lots of people have issues with and lots of women um, have problems with finding themselves and their voices at various ages and has nothing to do with 
what you look like. It's like right. what you imagine what you look like. That's the whole thing. Not to mention the fact, I agree, I love that character. He's played by Luca Jones, we should say. The boyfriend character's name is Ryan. And uh, one thing I did love about that relationship, I mean, obviously I don't think it should last. Ultimately, it is, it is a relationship that ne- she needs to dump him. But it would be too empowering and too pat if she just immediately realized that in the first few shows and dumped him, right? I mean, the point, in fact, is that she's slowly building confidence, at least enough to get control in the bad relationship before she ends the bad relationship. But something that I loved, for example, about the bad relationship in relation to her body is that he loves her body. There's not any issue between her and Ryan about her body. He thinks she's hot as hell, right? Um, the problem is that he's a horrible boyfriend in tons of other ways and is unbelievably immature. But uh, but Luca Jones just plays him so charmingly that I, I sort of wanted the character to stick around just to keep laughing. Oh, I don't know, though. I, I think we're supposed to read his relationship to her as he loves having sex with her body, but he doesn't love what her body connotes socially. And he is ashamed of her as a potential partner. You're right, but that's one of the small ways that she takes control of him and and is told to take control of him by some other conversations with with fat women that she has. I mean, I just think their their relationship is more nuanced than he's a dude who's using her and is ashamed of her and she needs to dump him. There's there's more complexity in it than that, and I, I appreciated that the show is giving us us time to work that out. Her roommate on the other hand is a character that seems to exist only to be a supportive black lesbian roommate who's, you know, just sort of the angel. I just felt like there was like magical Negro stuff happening with the roommate and just bad writing where the woman is just standing there waiting to be supportive and not seeming to have any job or life of her own. She's a, she's a, um, you know, hairdresser with a libido and overdrive, Dana. What more character do you need? <laughs> no, it's not all there. It's not all there. But it, I have the response I have to so many shows right now in this like let a thousand flowers bloom moment of television, which is... Even if this show is, it's sort of like your review of Captain Marvel, Dana, is like, how great that there can be a not brilliant, but strong and interesting, a flawed show about uh, a fat woman and her relationship to her body that's really different than the representation we get from Chrissy Metz's character on This Is Us. I mean, I remember discussing that show and feeling like it was radical that it actually took it, it treated the emotions that one can have around one's body when one is unhappy with one's body seriously as potential points of a plot arc rather than as super boring things that would never be part of an interesting plot arc that huge numbers of Americans of all kinds of genders think about in, in many different ways. And so, like, I just had the thought of a little girl who's beginning to think about what her body is and how she feels about it and how society feels about it like coming on this show and like how much better for the world this show exists like it it is good so i hope they get a season two and maybe they can deepen it all right well the show is shrill it's on hulu if you watch it and you have something to say about it please come to our twitter feed at slate cult fest or email us at culturefest at slate.com and we'll talk Benjamin Dreyer is the vice president, the executive managing editor, and the copy chief at Random House. And he has just, as of a few weeks ago, published his first book, Dreyer's English, An Utterly Correct Guide to Clarity and Style. Uh, Listeners will be familiar with this book because I endorsed it on our show, I think the week it came out, a few weeks ago, and uh, read it immediately, loved it. Uh, I was already familiar with you, like many people, from Twitter. Benjamin, it's nice to have you here in person. Welcome. So I guess I'll begin. Um, Why did you decide that the English language needed another guide to clarity and style? Well, it started, and, and, and of course, it's always, I'm not sure which one was the chicken or which one was the egg. I I, I decided uh, New Year's Eve a number of years ago that I thought I 
would like to start writing again. I had I had made an attempt to do some writing in the twenties and uh, in my twenties, and some of it had gone well and some of it had gone poorly. Um, and I, I I walked away from it just because, um, as a friend said, it's terrible always to be in a state of I'm not writing. Uh, and I found that wandering into a career as a proofreader and then and more important as a copy editor gave me a massive amount of of creative satisfaction. Uh, I was not one of those people who should be a writer and is frustrated, so is going to take his frustration out on on other writers' material. Um, I, I loved uh, copy editing. And, and, and again, as I said, so I, I decided I might like to try to write again. And I was sort of sketching things out every day because I'd made my New Year's resolution. I would write a little something every day. And then, of course, being a person who works in publishing, it seemed necessary to find something practical to write. Um, I mean, I'm surrounded by people writing and publishing books. And I thought, well, you know, the thing about writing about what you know, well, what I know about is copy editing. And I did truly think that I had something to bring to the conversation that other people had not necessarily been able to bring. There are a lot of people uh, who are who are eager to tell you what to do and how language works uh, because their specialty is what to do and how language works. But as a copy editor, my role was to find out what works for writers and uh, to offer them suggestions, to see what they like, to see what they rejected. And always working with writers, the, the ongoing attempt simply to, to, to make a book um, into the best possible version of itself uh, I learned. Uh, I, I learned so much, and, and everything that I learned, I, I thought I can share this stuff, and so it, it. That's how it occurred to me. I'm going to write the book that I'm going to write, and 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 I think that it will be different from other people's books, and apparently it is. In deciding to do this, did you feel the need to go back and? beef up on old style books? I mean, you do start off talking about, you know, the Chicago manual style and strunk and white and words into type and some of these classic, more print era uh, style guides. Did you feel like I want to avoid their influence or acknowledge their influence? Or how did you relate to that? Well, I had always used one particular book, the book called Words into Type, which I endorse any number of times in, in my own book. It's always been my style Bible. It's still on my desk. Um, uh, I, I always, when I can't remember how to do something or I, I want somebody else's you know, vantage, I, I always go back to this book because it's most important uh, to me. Uh, but I, I did find pretty quickly that I wanted to stay away from other people's guidebooks, um, to to do mostly my own, you know, re-research uh, outside of guidebooks, um, so that I wouldn't find myself either mirroring or, or even responding to what other people had done. I, I simply wanted to say what I had to say. I, like, don't care about grammar at all. Do you know what I mean? And I have spent a long enough time as a writer that I actually felt like I had osmotically learned a lot of those things. That, and I was, like, happy to know them. But, like, who who are you writing for? Like, who's this book for? Is it, like, for people who care? About, do you know what I mean? Like, about this already? Or are you imagining that people who, like me, am I supposed to be, like, now I have been awakened to, like, the importance of X, Y, and Z, maybe well, I, rule. I, I think the important thing, and, and, and one thing that I, I would like to say is I'm perhaps no fonder of grammar than you are. <laughs> um, and starting out work as copy editor, what I brought 
to the job was that I had, having spent my entire life reading and reading and reading, I had cultivated a very good eye and a very good ear. I knew how things worked. I didn't necessarily know what to call them or why they worked. So, of course, you know, once I did get into doing copy editing, um, it, it seemed appropriate for me to learn the jargon that went along with my job, which has proven to be very has proven to be very helpful. Um, you know, I mean, I I had no idea when I started copy editing what a subjunctive was, and now I know what a subjunctive is, uh, but. When I set out to write the book, I remember the conversation that I had with my editor and he said, you know, let's think about what the audience for this book is going to be. He said, now there's you and your fellow copy editors and he held his two hands together very close to each other. And then he widened them slightly and said, and of course, there are writers and writers will find this book helpful. And then he held his hands as far apart from each other as he possibly could. And he said, and then there are the people who want to know what one more person thinks about the Oxford comma. He said, that's the audience we want to try to capture. So this is like the pop. The pop usage crowd. I mean, I had the same question as Willow. First of all, I will say I love grammar and I love thinking about usage and style. And I really loved your book. And the thing I loved most about it was that it seems like the first style guide I've read whose purpose is to help people understand the mechanics of writing vividly. It's not just about writing correctly or avoiding errors or trying to keep your hand from getting slapped by a ruler, but actually what are the mechanics within a sentence that makes a sen- sentence a vivid conveyor of information that is exciting to read. And I loved also the vividness with which you express those ideas. So I was, I was like enthralled to your book. I loved it. But I also couldn't help but notice, uh, as Carrie Bradshaw might say, like the same question as Willow, which is this book is like making fun of the Bush presidencies. This book is, uh, you know, full of jokes that you might only get if you already understand what a subjunctive is and um, can appreciate the varied punctuation you use in adjacent paragraphs talking about different punctuation uses. And I, at the end, was like, I love that book so much. And it seemed like it might have been written exclusively for me and no one else in the world. However, of course, many people have found it. And I'm curious what you think. Who who are these people who are like dying to buy the New Yorker copy editor's book and and clamoring to buy your book? Like what is the popular usage audience? Who are those people? Well, I mean, uh, starting with the, the starting with uh, the idea of what is in this what is in this book and this pile up of jokes and in jokes and side jokes at a certain point as i was as i was writing the book and and i i must have written tens of thousands of words and throughout tens of thousands of words because even i was bored reading what i was writing because it was it was it was too it was stuffy and it was prescriptive uh, excessively prescriptive and it was bossy and none of it was what i wanted to be none of it was what i wanted to sound like and ultimately i decided that none of that was really I, I flattered myself. None of that was who I am. Um, and, and the funny thing is, it was it, that my eureka moment was realizing that the voice I had been cultivating on Twitter, where your job is to be engaging and succinct and welcoming, otherwise people will just read somebody else's tweets. I mean, the eureka moment was, oh, this is your writing voice. Write it down. 
And I started to do that. And then, of course, all of my sort of weird digressions, which is why the book sits on this sea of footnotes, and and, and allowing myself to make jokes in part for my own amusement. I mean, essentially, it was like you find the freak flag and then you fly it. And and my editor, to my great surprise, was his response was, "Go for it. This is it. This is what we want from you. This is what this is how you talk." Um, so there's that. Now, to answer your to to answer your other question, why is this book finding the favor that it's finding? It's a funny thing for me to sit here after the fact and think about that. When I was writing the book, I only really had, you know, the one goal, which was to be helpful and to be amusing. But what I have found, and it's interesting for people to tell you about what you've written, and you listen to them sometimes or you read them if they're writing about it and you think, me? I did that? Um People seem to find that the that this that the book I've written in discussing usage and discussing clarity and discussing writing with style, it all seems to be adding up to using language in an effective and honest way. And and not to begin to sort of like wrap myself in 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 an American flag from the freak flag to the American flag, um, maybe this is a good moment when people constantly feel as if the truth of language is being steamrolled at every at every opportunity and and every day that for somebody to say words count and they should be used um, not only effectively but honestly, it, it seems to be touching a nerve. I mean, it's a bestseller, right? Didn't you get on the bestseller list the first week? I got on the bestseller list the first week, and and I have so far enjoyed seven straight weeks on the bestseller wow. list. Wow, Mazel Is thank you, which is astonishing to me. Um, I may, you know, sometime next year or the year after, be sort of jaded about this this <laughs> this whole thing. But right now, I'm I'm the uh, I, I'm the debut author who's got a book that has succeeded beyond his wildest imagination, and I am having such a good time. Oh my god, that's so dreamy. Yeah. It is. It is. <laughs> well, so I'm curious whether you've gotten feedback from people who've read your book who you know, did not, as I did, like grow up in a family that celebrated the difference between less and fewer and like take Latin and love to think about parts of speech. Like I can, I know why I thrill to your book, but have you found, have you talked to sort of, uh, I don't know, high school students in a English composition class or people who are coming at the book from a position of, of, you know, having spent less time thinking about language and not made necessarily a career yet or ever in language uh, and gotten a sense of what they make of it? Like, it d- does the vividness of your selfhood in the book help them cotton to your ideas, even if they're not expressed in the most plain Jane way? Well, I haven't had the access yet to to the students th- that I would like, though I think that I have some of that in my future, and I'm excited about that because, I mean, I, I remember how excited I was about, you know, reading and books when I was a teenager, and I know that, you know, not all teenagers like, Teenagers are, are like that, but but some are, and, and I would like the opportunity to 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 communicate my enthusiasm for uh, for writing. So um, that that remains in my in my future, but I I do get messages from people. And of course, people will find a way to communicate with you in, in, in all sorts of interesting ways. I mean, I get letters at the office, actual typed out and sometimes handwritten letters, which is 
wow. Um, but every now and then I'll get a message through Instagram. And, um, and I, I got, I got one message and I'm, I'm loath to be the sort of person who can take something meaningful and recraft it into an anecdote. Um, but if I may, just to, to say that I got a, a, a message from somebody who simply wanted to tell me that not necessarily having to do with anything other than her sense of precariousness in, 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 in the world in which she was living, that she found great security and meaning in my book. And, and that just like, you know, rocked me to my feet. Um, that you know, I mean, it, it was great for me that people were going to like the book. It was great for me that people were going to read the book. But when people tell me the book means something to them, it means something to me. I have a question about a word you used earlier in in talking about the book, and it's something that in general I think you try to avoid doing. But it's the prescriptive versus descriptive question, right? That lexicologists and usage experts are always on about. Are you there to prescribe how people should use language, or describe how it is being used without judgment? And uh, you, in many places, kind of split the difference on that in this in this book. Um, for example, you're completely fine with the singular they, that is, with the pronoun they, with the singular verb form, in the way that we avoid saying his or hers, right? By saying everyone should hang up their hat. When right. Come in, right. fine with that. But then there are moments when you draw a line in the sand, the series comma being one of them. And another, which I so agree with you on, and this drives me mad because I see it everywhere, is danglers, as you call them, right? what used to be called dangling participles, that, that, that hanging bit at the beginning of a sentence. The one that always comes to my mind as an example is from Strunk and White's Elements of Style that has stuck with me for decades, that something like... As a mother of five with another on the way, my ironing board is always up, <laughs> right? So you've got a pregnant ironing board yes. in that sentence. Um, I just wanted to ask you about that prescriptive versus descriptive and how you juggled with that as you were writing. I mean, the thing is, I have always I have always known of myself, and I'm quite capable of talking out of many sides of my own mouth. Um, there are things that I draw the line uh, in the sand over because I feel strongly about them. And then there are the things that I'm happy to just be very sort of loosey-goosey about. And what I did, you know, quite consciously recognize as I was writing the book was, if I can play both sides of this successfully, I can make both sides feel happy happy and I can make both sides feel irritated and 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 what more fun what more fun than that <laughs> I do say in the book is that I I don't know anybody who's invested in words or in writing who doesn't hold on to at least six absolutely irrational beliefs and I wouldn't trust anybody who didn't have at least six irrational beliefs about words and about language and I'm sure I have many more than six um but um if I can if I can keep the reader guessing a little bit um, uh, then then again it's really it's just I'm it's just about writing a book that's 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 playful and that 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 is the most important thing is that writing should be fun and reading should be fun and if there's if there's no fun for the writer then there's no fun for the reader either what is your favorite punctuation mark the semicolon oh did you said that I yes I, 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 I yeah no I, I love the semicolon. do you think it's abused? Um, no, I think it's underused, and I think that it is. Um, I think that it is insulted by people who should know better than to insult it. Um, I, I grow weary of the oh, people only use it to show off school of thought. It's like you know, semicolons are 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 wonderful, and and as I am as I am known to say, whenever I get the opportunity, all you really need to know about semicolons and their beauty is that Shirley Jackson loved semicolons, and and if she is my favorite author in the English language, and she is, then um, she's all the backup I need to know that you know a semicolon is a good thing. 
I'm going to scan that page and send it to my editor who thinks that my sentences <laughs> go on for too long. The semicolon is your friend if you like to construct a, a grammatically long and complex sentence. Exactly. All right. The book is Dreyer's English, An Utterly Correct Guide to Clarity and Style by Benjamin Dreyer, copy chief at Random House. It's a wonderful book. Thank you so much for coming in to talk to us about it, Benjamin. Thank you for having me. All right, we've come to that part of the show where we endorse. Julia, what do you have for us this week? This is going to begin to seem stalkerish because I'm pretty sure I endorsed a piece of cultural work by Tavi Gevinson like two months ago <laughs> uh, when I endorsed her letter that she wrote upon closing Rookie, the wonderful and interesting teen magazine slash media empire that she ran for many years. But Tavi Gevinson's Instagram is super interesting right now, and I recommend that you all go check it out. She went moderately viral uh, last week when she posted a pretty funny little clip of her dressed up like a mad woman um, imitating Elizabeth Holmes's Theranos voice. I saw that. That was uh, really funny. And demeanor. But then I started poking around and, and kind of trying to figure out what she was doing and here's what she was doing she had been posting her usual manner of instagram stuff and had noticed a diminishment in her like likes and follows and engagements and links and so she began playing with the algorithm because she began to suspect that instagram was favoring video posts and posts that heavily featured faces and so she has done this very data series of talking to the camera videos in which she begins to explore talking to the algorithm and what the algorithm is demanding from her as a like public performance of self through social media. And she keeps dolling herself up and using weird Instagram filters and wearing a digital beret and uh, wearing a digital frog hat and putting on sparkly makeup and walking through Times Square and like directly addressing the algorithm. And it's like kind of deranged, but I think brilliant and I just Tavi Gevinson is a force for good in this world she is a media critic in the body of a wood sprite and uh, I would tell you you should go follow her on Instagram and check out what she's up to uh, I didn't follow her Julia until that Elizabeth Holmes impersonation went viral then started following her and one of the ways that she's uh, she's so great at these little bits of performance art is that she's really good with makeup right I mean she has this history also as a fashion blogger and somebody who ran a fashion magazine basically and so she makes herself up like Elizabeth Theranos with that exact same kind of sloppy spider eyelash makeup that, that Theranos wears in the documentary we just discussed and it's all sort of part of the part of the performance it's great. All right, uh, Willa, what do you have for us? I'm going to um, recommend a novel by Tessa Hadley called Late in the Day. Tessa Hadley is like um, it's like a middle-aged writer who's like one of these people who comes out with books so often that are like always so good, but so to like not particular fanfare that I actually like after reading this book just became completely fascinated by how she is so possibly so productive. But she's probably best known as... Um, she writes short stories. I mean, she's a short story writer. She's she appears in the New Yorker like pretty frequently as a short story writer. I am not like a. <laughs> I'm gonna reveal that I don't like grammar and short stories in the same episode. So I've revealed myself to be a philistine. Oh, short <laughs> stories are the worst. Short stories are the worst form. Right. I totally so, agree. Yeah, I feel if, the it, same. if you're if you're writing something interesting, just like give me a whole novel. This is and exactly if it's not interesting and you're just playing with language, like write a fucking poem. I, I, oh, cue the listener email flood. <laughs> I just feel like if I'm going to commit and then get interested, like I want it to keep going at this point. So she yeah. writes a lot of very good Also, Dana, 
listener flood, there's going to be like two people who are like, short stories, please. <laughs> like, you are alone. Willa Deborah Eisenberg is firing off her missive right now. In any event, she, she's I think the she's, one person allowed. She's a very lovely short story writer, but she also writes these novels. And this this last one, that's, it just came out recently. It's called Late in the Day. It's about, it's sort of like a, it's about four middle-aged, late middle-aged um people who have known each other their whole lives it's called late in the day it's sort of the plot is sort of precipitated by the sudden death of one of them that like destabilizes this foursome um and they have also have children uh and it's like it's just a really lovely good thoughtful realist novel that's like not that long it was like 250 pages and i just devoured it and felt like wholesome and like i really like she's just very incisive about character too in that way where you're like oh that's so amazing that novelists do that where they've like fully just actually imagined a person and they've not only imagined the person they've imagined how people think of the person and like how that is wrong in like the because it's or, it's or it's not wrong it's how that person appears to them but that person is doing something else like just like in the fictional space of make-believe um and i i really liked it it's like a it's not like a huge plot but it's not without a plot. It's not like a nothing novel. It's not autofiction or something. Um, and it's just like a very clean, crisp novel. Quick question about Tessa Hadley. Is the, are these worlds that she's prolifically creating related to each other? Is it a ton of French kind of thing where no. it's world building? No. I mean, but they're not, it's all set in like the real world. <laughs> you know, like it's, a, it's like this is set in among like um, very rich and also sort of uh, middle class, upper middle class London the one thing that I will say about her is like she needs someone to retitle her books because they're all in, like late in the day, clever girl, like the past. There's like all the sea of impossible to remember, like blurriness about the books. And it makes it hard, them harder to remember, um, even though this is about, you know, being late in the day of life. Uh, but no, they're 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 set. They're just like realist novels. So they're set like in, you know, contemporary, the contemporary world. And not about, like, all the heavy stuff that's happening in the world, but about, like, <laughs> feelings and relationships that exist in that world. Well, I love that kind of novel. Okay, Tessa Hadley. And, and this is a good starter, starter late in the day. Yeah, I really, I thought it was great. Okay, my turn, I guess. I debated whether it was too log-rolly to endorse the thing I'm endorsing, because it is a book by an author who, full disclosure, I interviewed. I was at her book launch party last week and was the person who asked her questions, and she invited me to do that because we know each other slightly from Twitter and having met a couple times. But I, I decided, what the hell? She's not my best friend, and it's a fantastic book. So I'm going to endorse High Heel, which is a new book by Summer Brennan. It's in the Object Lesson series, which I didn't know about before, which is these very pleasing little pocket-sized monograph books. It's only 150 pages long or so uh, about material objects. And I guess you pick, I don't know if there's ones about buildings or furniture, but there are things in our world that you know have mythologies and meanings beyond their simple everyday existence. And so high-heeled shoes are the object that she chose to write about. And, uh, and she just does so much in this little book. Um, it's not really a book about fashion or it, although there's there is some fashion history in it and she talks about the origin of the high heel and how many hundreds if not thousands of years they've been around and how they've had different meanings worn by men worn by women at different times um, there's also a bit of memoir in it and it kicks off with some personal memories that she has of a period in her life when she worked at the UN in a job that was low on the totem pole but you know it, fancy that insisted that she dress up and wear high heels and you know just experiences of sort of clattering around the UN building in a horribly uncomfortable high heel 
titles and being, you know, passed up for every promotion and, you know, all the men that she trained getting jobs that she wanted. And so it's about sexism and feminism in a way, but it's not polemical. It's not a screed. It's neither pro nor anti high heels. And she really gets into, and this is my favorite part, kind of the mythology, the deep mythology of the high heels. So she goes all the way back to, you know, Ovid and Grimm's fairy tales. And of course, Cinderella's slipper is in there um, and Chinese foot binding, but essentially just how important women's feet and especially the uh, the stylization of women's feet into different uncomfortable shapes has been a huge, huge part of culture, of, you know, literary culture, sexual culture um, all over the world for thousands of years. Um, so and it's 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 written in a very sort of lapidary poetic style where it's just not it's not exactly a through composed essay. It's like little numbered segments that sort of skip around through history, but she really weaves the whole thing into this beautiful story that makes you think about your feet and your shoes very differently. Put it this way, when I went to interview her at this bookstore last week, I really agonized over what shoes to wear <laughs> because this book is so much about, you know, what's required and what you should wear and, you know, sort of how you feel and what you wear and how it changes the way you walk, the way you stand, the way you present yourself, etc. I ended up wearing moderately high heels, <laughs> but I knew my feet would be scrutinized. So, uh, again, it's uh, it's High Heel by Summer Brennan in the Object Lesson series. And, yeah, it's highly recommended. You'll read it within a day. Julia, thanks so much for joining us. Glad you're back this week. Thanks, Dana. And Willa, thanks so much for coming in to fill in for Steve. I love when you do, and I hope you'll come in again soon. I would love to. Thanks very much for having me. You will find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page at slate.com slash culturefest, or you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. You can always, of course, drop us a note at our Twitter feed at slatecultfest. Our producer today is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish. For Julia Turner and Willa Paskin, I'm Dana Stevens, and we'll see you next week. Here is a sneak peek at this week's Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, plus ad-free podcasts, you can join us at slate.com slash culture plus. I'm not saying there's no movie or TV show that has ever surprised me. Of course there is. But it's not like that often. <laughs> like, I feel like you must know this too. Like, you're, aren't you very aware of the tricks that these... Like, you're, But that's why I try to avoid spoilers as much as possible. I'm just fascinated because I feel the exact opposite <laughs> about things that I, I want to see. 